Tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that will exterminate your species. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin an mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess and faith that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Yet again, another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast to guarantee that if you listen, you get to hear stuff. Something new, I understand. This week is episode 458. We've counted them. Actually, I had to sit down and count them because we were doing inventory last week. And uh, we found an old one. Oh, boy. And... uh, Swept it under the rug for reasons we'll talk about another time. So uh, tonight in 458, we are still in pandemic show mode uh, because of the need for social distancing. Uh, Captain Cam is not allowed in in Area 51. um, And the interweb is clogged as usual. So we we keep him out in in the outer corridor uh, where he sits there and admires my collection of Harley Quinn Barbie Barbie dolls. Uh, I just, oh, 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 oh. um, Drew informs me that there was a new store that she found at one of the, uh, one of the, one of the outlets uh, out in Tilton, which is a place that only people in New Hampshire would know about. It's a Sanrio store. And for those of you who don't know who's, what a Sanrio store is, it's a Hello Kitty store, and which would, have, again, mean nothing to anybody else, except that one of the Hello Kitty characters that is my favorite because I collect penguins is a very nasty penguin by the name of Bats Maru. And they had over 30 Bats Maru characters. So guess what I'm getting for Christmas? A figure of, uh, let me guess here. I wish I knew some other Hello Kitty characters, but all I know is Hello Kitty and Bat- now Bats Maru. So I now, guess I'm going to have to go with Bats Maru. You're going to have to go with Bats Maru, absolutely. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I mean, geez, what the hell else is there between Harley Quinn and Bats Maru? There's not much else. Although I, I have to admit that, uh, my wife was stuck her head into Area 51 this morning and said, you have 10 long boxes of comic books, nine of which you can no longer open because they're buried by other things. Do you think it's about time you started to get rid of some of them? And I thought I was going to have another heart attack. And I thought <laughs> <laughs> 
And then I, I kind of acquiesced and said, I will begin sorting them. <laughs> that, that's as much as I will deal with at this point. We will sort them. Translation, and, they're not and, moving anywhere anytime soon. Well, I'll move the boxes. We'll look at them again. <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing anything else beyond that. So what's new with you? How's the hand feeling there, Chip? Oh, it's it's great. I think I should be ready to get back onto the professional mini, mini golf uh, leagues uh, once again. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know. Yeah, I've already been, you know, out in the backyard warming up, which is a necessity because it's starting to cool down. I was going to say, uh, you realize it's supposed to snow on Friday, which means the the outdoor mini golf courses will be closing. And because of COVID-19 restrictions up here, the indoor courses are already closed. So you're screwed till spring. No, 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 no. That's just for you amateurs, us professionals. We play year-round. That's why we use those little colored balls. Is so, oh, you know, we don't God. get them lost in the snow. Little colored balls. Yes, yes. Uh, you scare me sometimes. Only, only sometimes. I am obviously not doing my job right. All right. Well, we will work on that for next week so that I'm scaring you all the time. All the time. Gee, thanks. I appreciate that more than you know. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, shall we get to tonight's show? What the hell? Show up. The concept of young adult fiction within the genre of science fiction fantasy has changed, grown, and evolved significantly over the years. What was once deemed young adult in the 1940s was written by such luminaries as Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, and their work is now seen as adult fare. Over the intervening years, the young adult pigeonhole, as it were, has expanded and changed significantly as society has changed, opening up this once restrictive genre to significantly modern interpretations as modern society has evolved. So when one is presented with a young adult book today, there really should be no preset set of circumstances or expectations, and perhaps that's a good thing. Tonight we have the opportunity to speak with a newer writer of the genre, a middle school teacher, who I've just found out is a middle school slash preschool teacher from Leafbridge, Alberta, Canada, which I probably am mispronouncing. Uh, when she isn't teaching or spending time with her family, she coaches drums and paddles with several dragon boat teams, and we're going to talk about that because I don't have a damn clue what that is. She is the author of several young adult novels, including the heroin, no wait, not heroin, heroin series. There's a huge difference between the two. And is here to talk about the newest book in her newest series, the Imagine series, entitled Reborn. Please welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, Jenna Green. Jenna, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. That was a long intro. <laughs> it went good, though. Oh, thanks. I, 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 I know. I'm, I'm trying to get to a point where when somebody says to me, well, then the next novel you've got to read, because... 
one one of the things that is kind of the nature of the beast with us here, uh, a with no conventions, uh, and b with no way to look at what uh, artists and and comic book writers are doing right now, is that we're we're dealing with an awful lot of writers, so um, reading like sometimes two and three books a week. And and when somebody throws a book at me and goes, hey, this is a young adult novel, and or, or this is a fantasy novel, uh, which is really not my mainstay, I'm trying real hard not to go, oh, my God, not, no, please, no. <laughs> and then I have to remember that I've done, you know, I've been in this, this pigeonhole before. Uh the first time somebody threw a paranormal romance novel at me <laughs> and said, no, you've got to read this. And I went, you're, you're, you're out of your freaking mind. There's no way in hell I'm reading this. And, uh, it turned out, uh, I was, I was dead wrong. And the same thing happened to me, uh, uh w- w- with young adult fiction, uh, in a, in a lot of ways, especially when it was brought to my attention, that you know things like uh uh Heinlein's uh Pokendike of Mars and uh uh a, a lot of early Heinlein a lot of early Clark was considered in its day to be young adult and I had no idea so when when this kind of crossed our 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 electronic decks just kind of went okay let's take a look at it and see where it goes so let's talk about, well, clearly it makes sense that you write young adult novels, I guess, because that's what you deal with. Well, the, and you'd think that, right? Because I spent 11 years in middle school and now I teach grades one and two. Um, but I started writing uh, in high school. So it, I guess I like kids and that's stayed with me. But um that I, you know, I started writing into high school, beginning of university. And back then, those were just the ages that I knew, right? So a good place to start. If you're 17 and you're starting to write, your characters are going to be about 17. But Right, which you um, know, um, sure. Yeah. But it stayed with me. I'm 38, almost 39 now. And I still write primarily YA. Um, people, YAs, it's, it's an odd thing. Is it a, a form? Is it a genre? Is it an age category? And it's a little bit of all three. And so it, it's almost like, you know, this type of story picks the author or the genre picks the author. And I just happen to love YA. I love uh, the, the, the fact that you can do nearly anything in it. Um, the YA audience is very accepting. And the YA audience is weird because half of it's teens and the other half is 35-year-old women. Right, the demographic. <laughs> it's very interesting, right? And so, um, I. But if you have that YA audience, whether they're teenagers or the older, um, older readers, they're still accepting. You can say magic exists, and they go okay because it's a YA book. If it was an adult book, you'd have to spend five chapters explaining the essence of magic and how it came to be. But if it's YA, you just say magic exists or dragons exist and that's what it is and that's just that acceptance and so you have that ability and so that's why I write YA um 
it may have started because those were the characters I knew in the age I knew, but now it's because that's the genre I love. So when you started writing, when you started writing this, this book reborn, um, you take the audience and and I'm going to no spoiler this as much as humanly possible, uh, because I think one of the most horrible things that an interviewer can do is say to an audience, and at the end of the book, when you do this, I mean, it's, it's just then then why is somebody going to want to read it if I'm going to tell you the whole story? But one of the things that you do and I don't know if you do this in any of your other books because this is the first one of them that I've read, is you literally drop someone, drop the reader into the middle of a story, into the middle of a situation, and force them to figure out what the hell is going on. I, I kind of like doing that to my characters. Um, I mean, I think you were all taught to just start in the middle of the action. Um, my Imagine series. Um, the characters are literally taken from one world to another and told figure stuff out. Um, I think in Reborn, though, it, it, I've, by that point, it was my fifth book that I had written. So I got a little better at just starting right in that middle of the action and just fine tuning it so that you have this character that is just thrust into a new situation. that They've got maybe two pages to get to to kind of figure out what's happening for the reader and the character. And then off they go. So I think that as I got better as a writer, I was just able to do that more. And YA is very fast paced. Um, I've heard lots of authors and readers say that's the a real big difference between YA and maybe children's or YA and an adult is that there's no time to breathe. We've got 60,000 words to just build a world and tell a story. And so it, things are just going to snap along and happen. And it, so you know, we have to start right in the middle of the action. In a way, it reminded me of the movie Time Bandits, in that scenes change by people breaking a wall, and all of a sudden you're running from a child's bedroom into a forest. And, you know, it, it's that kind of a snap move or a snap change. And, and uh, it had that kind of a, a jarring jolting for me um not that that's a bad thing but i'm just saying it's it's i i'd never read a ya book like that before because i'm not used to reading ya books maybe that's what that's about so that having been somewhat clarified for me how did you come about building this world? Let's talk about this world a little bit that we find that we find Lexel and Sierra in. Well, just to quickly address just your last point about that that jarring okay. intro to the story. What it does is that it gives you time then if you just jump right into the action and build that world really quick, it gives you time. Gives you a few chapters of space to really deal with everything. That's a little gift there. This world was 
like it, it I, I in my imagine series i spent a lot of time with that pre-building of the world this one um it just kind of hit me i was just you know driving my car and boom what was what could this world be um the idea for the whole premise of the book was um thinking about a meme about gingers those red you know redheads and thinking about my freckles and just thinking about one feature of a person's body that could be used to categorize them whether positively or negatively and then this story evolved very quickly they usually don't for me they usually take a little bit more planning but this one just like the character really spoke to me and um the emotion of her journey and um a lot of the word world building is very deep but a lot of it's very simplistic and and so there's an interesting paradox there so um a lot of the stuff at the beginning is very she's just taken to a plantation and told to work and there's not a lot of world building there it's no there isn't trees there's the building right it's not till later that different elements are introduced so it was kind of dichotomous in the world building parts are very simple and parts are very complex yeah i would have to agree with that because one of the things i noticed as i was reading even though i was in my head there was a part of me that knew that this was not earth you know that this was not our timeline our time it very much could have been right up until the point where you started dotting in and again i'm trying not to do any spoilers but started dotting in little bits of magic you know glowing eyes staring out from the forest little bits of these things that are not are part of our world these little things like those the the freckles on the face of the characters you know I'm, I'm realizing that this isn't our world. It's close. It's very close. There's a lot of similarity, and, and I love that. But, yeah, there, it, it's, 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 it's not until you start getting in a bit before you really start seeing, you know, the, the more fantasy side of this, uh, this story, which was, which was kind of fun. It was kind of fun to get things rolling and then add in the magic. Yeah, and I and that was a different approach than what I usually take. But this whole book is is really about slavery and and that unfairness. And so for it, for us to make that connection between like history and this world, it had to be very recognizable at first. Why? Just so that people can make that parallel that this could really happen in real life and it has happened in real life and to give them that awareness that these were you know real people that have had their lives turned upside down um just because a feature of their physical appearance they are deemed as less or they're deemed as worthy or they're deemed as dispensable so then my next question kind of has to be How this book, it didn't, you didn't really actually plan this book out as you normally plan a book out. It just kind of threw itself at you. It was really, I didn't realize it at the time. Because at the time, at least I'm not very perceptive. But this book was really <laughs> influenced by my mom. So the first half of it uh, that I wrote 
She was um, dealing with cancer. She was going through treatments. She ended up in palliative care. She passed away. I paused for a month and then I got back into reading the story. So the emotion, the underlying emotion that's in this book is very deep. Um, There's a lot of um, hints at connections to the past, connection to previous lives, previous lifetimes. And that core of it I knew was related to my mom, but the whole overarching theme and and some of those details and the emotion that went into it I wasn't necessarily aware of that at the time so it was very much influenced by her illness and her passing did you know that at the time or in retrospect did you recognize that I think when I was editing I don't think I think the first draft right because I was writing it while You know, I was visiting her in palliative care. Sure. Parts of it after she had passed. Um, And then I think it was, you know, months, months later, maybe, you know, when I'm editing it. And I was like, oh, right. And you can see some of those connections. Once you have that distance from a a piece of writing, then it's easier to see those things. Plus, I'd also process a lot more of my personal emotions with the situation. That you can't do while you're going through it. Well, when the emotion's raw, it's much more difficult to process. There are are writers who tell me that they spend so much time in world creation, they drop a character in and they know exactly how it works and exactly where it goes, how it belongs, where... It exists where it begins, where it goes, where it ends. There are other writers who tell me that they create a character and the character tells them where they're going to go, what they're going to do, how they're going to exist, where they're going to begin, where they're going to end. I have my guess as to what your characters are. What's the guess? (laughs) (laughs) My guess is you had some idea. You had some idea. I think they took you over. I think you you created them and they took you over. My characters never listen and they never obey. I tend to have (laughs) I tend to have the beginning really solid. I know how things are going to start. I have a pretty clear idea of the end. There can be some tweaking, but I have a goal at the end. It's really all the middle stuff that the character does what they want to do. So there's like an an arc. That's planned, but all the little bits in between, yeah, that the characters never listen. I tell them not to do stuff, they do it anyway. I do not believe. And I'm gonna just pull up. Oh god, what page was that on? I do not believe that you wrote the last page of that book. 
Why not? The last, the last line of the last page of that book. I believe she wrote it. Oh. Yeah, she probably did. That's the thing. I'm so alive. I, so I think, yes, exactly. Exactly. She set it up through the last three or four paragraphs <clears throat> of conning herself into believing that that's what she had to do. And then the very last line uh, on, on page 247, you didn't write that. She did. You're right. And that's, that's the joys of being a writer. You're kind of taken over by either the muse of the story or by these characters. And sometimes um, you plan something and then the character says something and you're like, well, that's not going to work. I mean, my best friend plans out stories with me. Like we sit and we kind of, I just tell her what the story's going to be. And then we hash out little details and we'll sit for hours and have tea and we'll talk. And then as I'm writing, as I'm drafting, I send her each chapter as I, as I, as I write it. And people always ask her, they're like, well, why would you read it? You know what's going to happen. You just planned it with her. And she always says, it never works out the way it's planned. It, it's always, <laughs> never, ever. Maybe the, half the time, the characters' names don't even stay the same. Um, the, the beginning stays the same. The rough ending stays the same. And then it's just like, how did all the details switch around and change? And how did the characters, sometimes what the characters learned has to change what the next plot point is. So she she says it's always surprising. So she can plan it out a chapter out with me that afternoon and the next day get it and be like, well, that's different. Yep. Yep. And that's how writing works. <laughs> and and I can see, you know, and, and I got to that line and I just kind of went. <clears throat> she just gave away her entire process and I, <laughs> I figured it out immediately. And and there's there's another thing that you do that I don't know if you you know that you do it or not, but you 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 leave trails of breadcrumbs, um, for book two, all over the place. I try, I try really hard. I write series, so <laughs> I think I get. I always know that there will be a sequel. Um, I don't necessarily always know what that sequel is going to look like, but I know that this story will have a good ending, an ending that fits for this book, but that there is still more to be covered. And so there's other layers, right? That we can go back and revisit. And I try, I try to leave the breadcrumbs. Sometimes they don't always work out, but I try to leave them. And because I have this, I know I have the knowledge that there is a sequel. Um, I have to leave a, just you threads dangling, and so well, I hate the knowing f- that, I hate the fact yeah. that. You've already said that there's one on your webpage. You, you've already it, said there's another one coming. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's at my publisher, and he's going to be editing it probably December, January, and the third one I've already drafted. I just have to, ooh, you know. Ooh find some times between report cards to uh, kind of tweak it a little bit. So yeah, no, they're coming. 
technically the whole series is drafted. It's just not all edited and published yet. Okay, so I have some questions about a couple of the bread breadcrumbs that you dropped. Okay. I don't know if you're going to answer them or not, but I'm going to ask them. <laughs> One of the breadcrumbs you dropped was a place called the Unclaimed Cities. You didn't say much about them. You just said they exist. And oh, I guess. Yes, we'll have to learn more about those that those places. My question is, <laughs> do they exist? And do we get to exist? Do we get to learn about them? We do get to learn about them. Um, and all I'll say is that you know, we always are, people in life are always looking forward to finding perfection or finding something better, finding utopia or whatever it is. And there's no such thing as utopia. Nothing's perfect. Everything will have its pros and its cons. And so uh, we will get to learn um, about the unclaimed cities. And uh, but they have their own problems. So we'll have to the reader will have to see. Um, what those places that have been idealized are really like. And now I, think I know that's that, all I can say. Oh, okay. Okay. Well at least there's there's one breadcrumb verified. <laughs> <laughs> now Cam, I know you had a question about the uh, the plantations. Oh yes, because I, I was upset. I, if you hadn't asked me to ask it, I was just going to stick my foot right in there and ask it anyway. I, I know see, you were. Seeing as we're talking about breadcrumbs and things being woven like a bracelet, um, <laughs> yes, I went there. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Absolutely um, done. So on the you when you we first are introduced to uh, Lexil, um, she is being taken to a plantation. And one of the first moments I realized that this is in our world is they are picking a plant called, and I'm going to correct me, my pronunciation, Willock. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right. So they're, they're picking these plants. And, of course, they're, it, they're, I'm, I'm reading it. And I, I always put these little things away in the back of my head just in case. You know, you never know when I'm going to need it when I meet an author that's sneaky like you and decides to reuse it near the end of the book. That's a compliment. I like sneaky authors. Thing. Um, so I'm reading about this, and all that's really said is, oh, they turn it into a medicine, and they have the uh, the slaves, you know, work with it. And the slaves are these, you know, title title drop here, reborn. You know, the, the these are the, the the slaves are the people who are the reborn, who are the characters that the book is titled after. They are, and because of their markings on their face, their freckles or spots or whatever we wish to refer to them as that marks them. So they're forced to work on these plantations or wherever they need slaves to do these jobs. And so she finds herself plucking these leaves that are supposed to make medicine. And one of her friends on the plantation makes her this really nice bracelet. It's a, it's again, anybody else might think, Oh, that's just a throwaway. I put that in the back of my head. Cause I'm going, yeah, so this, that doesn't sound like a throwaway. We start getting a little bit further in that story. 
we start learning once, you know, things start moving along in the story. And like I said, I'm trying not to give away any spoilers. So I'm being very vague and generalistic. We learn <laughs> that that Willick is fairly important. And more than fairly important, it's very important. It is intertied between, and I'm going to use the other term, once borns. So there are, let me just get this out there so that everybody else is listening knows what the heck I'm talking about. There are once borns who are people who are born once. And there are the reborn who have been born multiple times. And each dot on their face represents a new life they've gone through. So the once borns are the slave masters, or the masters and the, the reborns are the slaves. The, the once born make them pluck these leaves, which to form a, create a medicine, but it also has a very interesting effect on our friends, the reborn, which I'm looking at this going, and, and like I said, I don't want to give too much away, but you, you took that bracelet and those leaves and you put it there and I put it in the back of my head and then you pull it out right at the very end and go, and this is why she's wearing the bracelet. Did you remember that? And I'm going, I remembered that. But will we be, will we be seeing more of this? Will it? Because I really think this is a rather fascinating concept that these masters of these plantations are making these slaves produce something that has an effect almost exclusively, as far as I can tell, on the reborn, unless I'm wrong. And again, I, I only know what you've told me so far about Willick. So I'm just curious, will we be learning more about Willick? Oh, you have no idea. So no, we don't. <laughs> the worm, that, the can. I don't tend to put things in there if they don't have a meaning, either in the book that we are currently on, or if it feels like why is she telling us this? It does have a meaning in the series. Um, my editor always uses the editing rule: Chekhov's gun. She's like, no Chekhov's gun. You. Anton Chekhov always used to say when he's writing, if you wrote that there was a gun in the corner of the room, it better be used to shoot someone later. Otherwise, yep. why are you telling us that detail? It's That's a great otherwise. Yeah, yep. I love it. Yep. So the bracelet itself, yes, it is made of the stems of the Willock, but it's really um, a symbol of friendship. And um, if you've read some of the book, you'll know that Lexel gets off the plantation. But there are yes. other people that, that aren't. They do not. So having something that's a symbol of that plantation, when you have freedom and they do not, that is a symbol of that state that is going to lead to a lot of emotion from her. There's that tie of friendship, but then there's that guilt of what she now has versus what others are denied. Um, she was also was a late bloomer. So her marks did not appear until late in life. So she went from someone with those privileges to someone without those privileges. At a, usually that happens to, you know, when they're really young, but she's a lot older. Willick itself is going to take a, a, the next two books to really figure out what is happening and why... It is being used. What people actually know about its powers and its uses versus what. Um, like even, even in the first book, we have the character Finn. And he always is questioning what is real 
versus what is just being said as real, right? And um, he he's wrong in some aspects in that he thinks, oh, all this stuff about re- being reborn is just hooey. It's just an excuse for slavery. Um, he's wrong in essence. There is some truth to it. But he is right in another way that they're just grabbing something and using it as a reason to enslave people. But that question of Willick, what is it said it's being used for? What it's actually being used for? And it'll be really um, interesting in the sequel. And in fact, a large chunk of the the beginning of the sequel is really going to deal with that that bracelet she has, um, which in where she's from, that just there's Willick everywhere. But in the unclaimed cities, there is no Willick. In fact, there's a very good reason why there is no Willick. So her having that bracelet is going to become a major issue, which I cannot explain any more of. But oh, I understand. That, yes. <laughs> That bracelet's going to be so significant in so many ways, emotionally, for the character, for the connection to her whole journey, and then to what she's going to learn now as this series opens up. It's going beyond just her trying to get from point A to point B, but now trying to change things in in different locations. And it's so very different journey for her in the second and the third book um, versus what she has to do. And versus what she now can choose to do. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm trying not to get too heavily into it, but it's it's fascinating what you said about it being a a symbol of friendship, and yet there's some other symbolism that most readers will find out about later on in the book, which makes it sort of this paradox where it's like it means one thing but it also means another thing to her later on and i just think it's it's so wonderful how you did that and you built that throughout the book so yeah looking forward to finding out a little bit more about this lovely little plan thank you i'm a huge fan of the hunger games uh series that is a ya phenomenon and the um the mocking j symbol the mocking j pin right yeah it is just starts off with it's something nice she bought for her sister that her you know in in the in the movie it's it's different than how it happens in the book but she gives it to her sister for luck and then her sister gives it back to her for luck so it originally starts as just this symbol of sisterly love but as the book develops and as the series develops it now has a symbolism of like survival of overcoming the odds of changing of adapting it, it, the symbolism grows throughout the series. And so the same thing with the Willick and the Willick bracelet is that in the first book, it has one meaning, maybe two. And as the series grows, the layers will just add on and on and on. So what started you in science fiction? Where did you get the bug? I just, well, I don't know. Something happened to my characters that was, I don't know. I have no, written I mean, one. I have written one contemporary novel, but I just. I mean, when you, when, when you were a wee lass, when you were a wee, you see, because I, I, I remember exactly the day that science fiction bit me. I, I remember it as if it was yesterday. And I was nine years old. And I was in uh, Brentano's bookstore in Manhattan 
with my father. And we were browsing through uh, the books. And I came across Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, the Mars series. And I just started looking at all the graphics and he said, do you like that? And I said, I don't know. And I just sat down on the floor and started looking at them. And I walked out of there with the entire series. And from that day on, I was hooked. And when I was growing up, there weren't as many, at least not for kind of generated towards girls. There weren't a whole lot of science fiction and fantasy. You had right. Lord of the Rings. Which I tried in seventh grade to read and didn't finish till ninth grade because it's a bit wordy. It's a great book, but for a preteen or a teen, it is a little tricky. Um, Harry Potter didn't come out till I was in university. So I was already starting my writing path, maybe not my career, but my path far before Harry Potter ever came around. I remember studying it in university. Um, when I grew up, you know, for books for girls, it was Nancy Drew and the Babysitter's Club and Fear Street. And that was really it. The The good news, though, is that we had, um, the, there was still the television shows, right? You still had Star Trek. You had Doctor Who. Um, in high school, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right? Oh, there you go. Yeah, you got to go Buffy, which was very much oh, yeah. what I like, where it's grounded in reality with some fantasy in it, right? High school actually happens. People actually happen. Okay, throw in some vampires and some monsters. I think I just love the creativity of the fantasy and the sci-fi. I want a, a monster that does this. Okay. I want, I can create anything I want. Um, I admire people that write historical. Um, I don't do that. I don't go research what civilizations were like. I just make them up. I mean, I use a lot of history <laughs> as like jumping off points. Um, but a and then I just, I don't have to be accurate, though. I don't have to accurately depict a Peruvian society. I can just look up Peruvian society, go, oh, I like that, and I like that, and mix it with some Norse mythology, and then I can create whatever I want. Um, I, I always say I do reverse um, research, though, because once I've written one book in the series, and I want to make sure the next uh, books are um, accurate and stay um true to that world, I always have to go back and, and make sure that I'm rereading and going back and going over my notes. Um, but there's just so much freedom in fantasy. If I want dragons, which I've not done yet, but I should soon, uh, I can have dragon. I can say magic is real. Um, and there's just the caution, though. You can't just use the, the fantasy uh the magic or whatever to get the characters out of a situation because that's kind of a cop-out you have to build it into the world and then i mean especially in my imagine series the magic is more of a pain in the butt than anything and it's often the problem but the root of the story is the character and then you just get to you know jazz it up a little bit and imagine what could happen and then how will your characters deal with all that 
I will say How? something because you brought up dragons is that one of the things I liked about this series is you didn't use any of And again, this is like somebody we had interviewed like two or three weeks ago, Dome, is that yeah. we that your creatures are your own creations you can kind of get a feel that they could that you took some inspiration from maybe here, here, and here, but they're not the archetypes. As I jokingly said to that author, who we know rather well from her science fiction work after moving over to fantasy, I said, You don't have a single go- goblin, troll, or dragon in there. What were you thinking? Jokingly, <laughs> but this is what you've done. You've created, um, I'm just going to pick one out of random your traces. Who are these? I don't know whether to call them ghosts or vampires. They almost strike me as the concept they're that creepy. the Chinese. Yeah, they're, they're very, very creepy. Yes, <laughs> but they strike me as almost like the 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 hungry ghosts from Chinese mythology a little bit. Plus, there's just like little bits of other things in there that is just taken out of Barry's piece of mythology, and you built these very creepy things that just come wandering up and go, "Hi, we're hungry. Can we join you?" <laughs> yes, we have your soul. Like, um, yeah. I think in my in the, uh, the Imagine series that I've referenced a few times, that's more of that traditional fantasy, right? There's elves and there's dwarves, and then I w- created a bunch of characters and, and species on my own. But even those species are very similar to some you might find in like other books. With this one, I gained that confidence. I gained the confidence that I could use traditional characters and add my own characters and monsters and I was able to just do that and not have to use those traditional tropes um and so I I was it was like a step of bravery on my part to be like okay now you're gonna step out of that world that tradition of the elves and the dwarves and now you're gonna have to create all your own and um I I hope it turned out good but I think um I just had to be brave and try and create something original. But yeah, it, there's always the influence from somewhere. No, I, I think you did well. That's why I brought it up is that the, the traces are very interesting. I won't go into the shades because the shades are a little more pivotal to the story, as best I can tell. Maybe the traces are. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think you did an excellent job with both of those in creating something that's familiar yet still different and still your own your own creature especially in the atraces so that you're yeah. not gonna find in any other book exactly Except for yes. sequels. <laughs> yep we're not gonna find in any other book except one of yours yeah there you go so what have we learned here today um i think what we've learned is When you attempt to pigeonhole something, uh, you make a pigeon out of your own. No, no, let's not go there. (laughs) I don't think that's it. No. (laughs) No, that's not what we've learned. What we've learned is um, that young adult novels are in and of themselves an interesting piece of work. Uh, Someplace where you can find marvelous, wonderful creativity, someplace where you can find people and places and things that you wouldn't normally expect from a young adult novel, 
because I don't know what you expect from a young adult novel anymore. I've given up trying to limit my expectations. And I think that that's a very smart thing to do, especially within science fiction and fantasy. Each time uh, I come across a subgenre, I say to myself after I go, oh, God, not again. I really don't want to try this. I say to myself, every time you say, most of the time when you say this, you get proven wrong. And Jenna, I can't thank you enough for once again proving me wrong. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the author we've been speaking with tonight is Jenna Green. The series is the Imagines, uh, the Imagine series. I got that right. The first book is Reborn. The second book is coming out shortly. When it comes out, please let us know. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying... Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. That sounds good. That sounds perfect. <laughs>